Welcome back, everybody. This is Alex. I'm accompanied with Zane and Andrew again. We're bringing you back the part two of cardiac arrest treatment. In the previous podcast, we talked about differences that have come along with continuous cardiac compressions going on and what improvements have been made there. We did a great little refresher on H's and T's. In this podcast, we're going to be tying it all together, and we're going to be presenting a different idea and approach and some research that has been found to change the administration of epinephrine within cardiac arrest. The interesting part is I've recently found out some parts of our state have already started to adopt this different approach in use of cardiac arrest epinephrine doses and the amount that they're actually using. With that, I actually want to ask Zane because he works in southern Arizona and they've already adopted a different approach in epinephrine and overall cardiac arrest treatment. So Zane, can you enlighten us a little bit? I don't know if I can enlighten anyone, but I will discuss what we've been doing. So in Southern Arizona, we've been following a different cardiac arrest standing order. With that, so the exclusion, of course, is age less than eight. We are focusing on continuous chest compressions with a witnessed cardiac arrest. So 100 to 120 compressions per minute uh, for four rounds. With that, and that's four rounds before intubation, let me clarify, or advanced airway, considering H's and T's, things like that. Um, passive oxygenation with a non-rebreather and an airway adjunct, as we discussed in the last episode. So throwing in an NPA, OPA, non-rebreather, high flow, and letting that be their method of oxygenation and ventilation rather than using a BVM. And the biggest change in here is the administration of a max of two milligrams of epinephrine. What? I know, right? Wait, <laughs> wait. What? what? Epinephrine until ceiling of nothing and three to Q3 to 5? Where's that? But how am I going to say mama? Mama's <laughs> what What are we supposed to do with the multidose vials? Yeah. Oh, my God. Please dilute. Um, sorry. <laughs> Trauma. I just had PTSD from something. Um, so, if you're max of two and epi, what our protocol is, you give one milligram of epinephrine, IVIO, as early as possible. So, you do your compressions, you, you know, do whatever you're doing with the airway, and get your line. Immediately give that one milligram of epi. Caveat. But ACLS says every three to five minutes. Yeah, to no, no ceiling. We're going to wait. You're going to wait eight minutes from that administration of epinephrine. You will administer another milligram of epinephrine, and then you are maxed out for that arrest. So, why are we doing that? That doesn't make sense. I thought you just stacked epi until you give a pulse to a rock. Mm-hmm. Not quite. Um, after you do that, all you're doing is continuing chest compressions and considering your H's and T's that we talked about in the last episode. So what do we know about epi? Why the change? Why are we only giving two milligrams of epi as a max? Well, uh, in my opinion, at first, we got to realize where epinephrine came from, right? You know, no, in order to know where you're going, you need to know where you came from. And epinephrine first came into cardiac arrest realm, really, 1960s, where they looked at it and they said it was a alpha and beta adrenergic drug. They tested it on dog asphyxias to see how much they have potential for ROSC coming out of that. And it was great because alpha, it's a great vasoconstrictor. It's going to make a small tank, make CPR more effective. We're building up the coronary perfusion, and we're getting some beta adrenergic effects from it. So, hey, why not? Let's throw it in there. And that's initially where it kind of started coming from. They were choking dogs. For this I know, study. right? So mean. You could um, get away with anything in 1960s. Clearly. No animals were harmed during, <laughs> during, <laughs> during this podcast. The study of the <laughs> <laughs> 
So a lot of the reason why we've reduced the amount of epi we're giving, we are getting ROSC on these patients. However, their mortality rates are very, very high. Um, their 30-day mortality looking at, we've gotten ROSC, we get into the ICU, but they're brain dead. Um, they have no purposeful neurologic function. So we've given all that epi, but with that epi, yes, we're getting perfusion to the heart. We're getting the heart to beat again, but we're also in a turn constricting those coronary vessels. So they are, we are reducing their cerebral perfusion in an extent to the point that their brain is now anoxic. So without oxygen for a long period of time, and we're not doing them any justice. We are saving people so they can be on a ventilator or trached. And you know, sometimes it's good organ donation, things like that, but we don't need to be doing all of that. Compressions are the most effective portion of cardiac arrest. So it's funny that you actually mentioned it. So um, as recent as 2018, a study was done. It was called Paramedic 2 Study and was actually done in the UK. So what they chose to look at is exactly what you talked about. There are some issues that they had great ROSC return with epinephrine, but 30 days on, there were so many neurological deficit factors in patients that were leaving the hospital that they could not understand what was going on. So this study all of a sudden actually sits there and goes, okay, wait a second. Is epinephrine that great for us? Is it doing the right thing? Yes, the, um, you know, you got the alpha constriction, everything going on. And like you said, the exact thing that they looked at was the cerebral perfusion pressures and the fact that you were vasoconstricting so much. So even when they looked at it and they broke down the whole study, they actually looked at it as no epinephrine administration in the placebo group. They were just randomized the placebo and epinephrine. And then they even went down as far as looking at patients that got one milligram, two to five milligrams and greater than, plus the time, time when they were actually administered. The later the epinephrine was given to a patient, the worse off the patient outcome was. There was actually borderline no ROSC going on into it. In the patients that got three to five milligrams, that's where they started seeing a lot of the patients that were having the 30-day post-neurological deficit issues. When epinephrine with proper CPR was given up front early and minimized, that's where they saw most of the effect actually coming out of it that was making a big difference. So where does this all take us from here? I mean, we've talked about plenty, a couple of changes, plenty, a couple of changes. That's a great oxymoron. Love it. Um, in the previous one episode, we talked about introduction of CPR machines. Again, the biggest things that we have found in that study is lactic acids not being as increased as they are with regular CPR. And tidal CO2s being more responsive, which shows cardiopulmonary resuscitation is good and the blood flow is actually working well. It's minimizing the interruption anytime we, we move the patient. You know, I think the biggest approach for a little while is, in my history at least, I've seen a point where we showed up on a cardiac arrest and we were able to stay, on, stay in play for a little bit on scene and actually work the patient, try to figure out and everything else. And then there's this dynamic that I felt that shifted, at least in the area that I was working, to show up, do a little bit, load and go run. And I feel like we've slowed it back down a little bit with the introduction of CCR, which kind of made it a little bit better. And CCR has kind of slowed it down to you have to at least do minimal of 800 compressions, four rounds of 200 before you can make another decision. Along with that, where else can we go? I mean, it's slowing us down because ultimately, I'm going to probably be hated for being one to say it, but we need to stay in play and stabilize the patient. Figure out what the problems are. You should have a few tools at your disposal and see if you can broach that. 
if it's not going to work, patient's done for. Unfortunately, we call for termination of field efforts and we're done at that point, right? I mean, am, am I wrong in viewing it that we need to just kind of hold on for one second, use our brains in a cardiac arrest to put it all together between everything we talked about in the H's and T's up to the point that we are applying CPR machines and potentially ventilators so we can take away the necessity to have one person dedicated to ventilation and we don't have to worry about synchronized ventilation where we're looking for asynchronous ventilation to be able to help out with the cardiopulmonary pump to work better to create an actual output because that's we breathe and talk and our heart beats at the same time and that's what the body really needs so Am I crazy for wanting to slow down for a hot second and say, hey, let's try to see if we can solve a few problems, stabilize the patient before we get moving? Uh, I don't think you are at all. Um, you know, in my opinion, a patient should be worked on scene until we get ROSC or ultimately, you know, pronounced in the field. Um, as far as transporting a coding patient, we are awful at doing CPR in a moving ambulance. Uh, moving our patient, you know, whether it's onto the gurney, into the ambulance, out of the ambulance, we're going to be stopping CPR constantly. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think our patients are going to have good outcomes getting transported immediately or, if at all, while in cardiac arrest. Considerations with that, of course, is if you do know the underlying cause and it's something we don't have the ability to treat, yes, get something definitive care. So, something obviously right, right. treatable, yes. So, with that, too, so with the... In um, application of those compression devices like a Lucas, you can even consider HEMS transport. Everyone's like, you don't put codes in a helicopter. Not true. Um, if we have a trauma code, specifically a traumatic cardiac arrest, they need a level one trauma center. They need a surgeon and they need a level one trauma surgeon, not a general surgeon <laughs> at a level three center who has a God complex, but someone who can actually give them the care <laughs> they need. So yeah. I'm not speaking in any sort of term or not slide referring to any, to any <laughs> specific <laughs> no, facility, but hypothetical, of course, we've um, all been there, but with that, of course, so that is, those are patients that, yeah, you know, it's going to be 10 plus minutes on scene of coding. Maybe they do get Ross. We put them on the Lucas device, get them the helicopter, probably another 20 minutes to the trauma center, but maybe there they can then crack their chest, cross clamp their aorta, put in a reboa, do other things that we just don't have available. But at least we can give that patient the best chance, especially if, you know, they are that healthy 20-something-year-old who wrecked their motorcycle and they have no head trouble. We're thinking if I could just get them where they need to go, they might be neurologically intact if we're keeping their perfusion going with compressions and doing the interventions that we know how to do. Yeah, you're right. And, and I think... Uh what I like that you alluded to the traumatic cardiac arrest because I think we take traumatic cardiac arrest and we say in general the survival rate of a tra traumatic cardiac arrest in itself is what, 0.1% at this point? Something like that. Yeah, I mean, look, I get it. There's plenty of problems. Uh, I also reserve, and this is completely my opinion, so nothing that I can back up with an article, this, that, and the other thing, but I think we do more medical codes than we sometimes do trauma codes and we get to the point that we get into this monotony of trauma code is a trauma code and we start treating it as a medical code and we forget things. And this is the reason we kind of wanted to hit the H's and T's because the key in traumatic cardiac arrest is I want you to remember the one word. It's HOT, H-O-T-T. -T. It's the, you know, it's the hypovolemia, oxygenation portion, traumatic, uh, cardiac tamponade, and tension pneumothorax. That is the four things essentially that have to be directly associated and treated in traumatic cardiac arrest for you to have any chance.
Now, in all honesty, short of the hypovolemic aspect of we start an IV, IO, we open up the bags of fluids and go from there and throwing in whether it be alternative airway or an actual ET tube or BVM, you know, you've taken care of the two things. And I know some of you can say, like we talked previously in the H's and T's, there's nothing they can do about cardiac tamponade. Well, you're doing fluids, you're already on your way. It could be a suspect thing as far as adding in what the mechanism of injury is. But I do not see why there is a hang-up with so many people in the pre-hospital field when there is a traumatic cardiac arrest to be able to take two bilateral needles and do needle decompressions, at least bilaterally, to get that over and done with. They're dead. It, I, I hate to say it, but they're dead. There's nothing that's going to get better, and at least you're knocking one thing out of your tree and not treating him as just a truly medical H's and T's approach and giving him potentially one chance. Yeah, I'm a big believer that any traumatic arrest patient should get bilateral decompressions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we used to, when I was working in the Middle East, we were calling it the Holy Diamond. ET tube, cardiac, uh, you know, pericardiosynthesis, and then bilateral uh, needle decompressions, and that completed your Holy Diamond in a traumatic cardiac arrest to actually ward off any bad spirits that would get a chance to get any um, you know, spontaneous rosk. I always liked uh, the term three-hole punch. Uh, three-hole punch goes too, yeah. <laughs> so talking about the three-hole punch, let's talk about intubation because goodness forbid that we talk about a cardiac arrest and no one talk about them getting a tube. I'd alluded to intubation in the prior part of the episode where we talked about the continuous compressions for four rounds of 200 compressions and then considering our ages and T's including advanced airway management. So at that point, if you haven't achieved ROSC, or maybe you do know that this is a hypoxia-related arrest, then we should be working towards an advanced airway, whether that be an ET tube, an eye gel, a King Air LTE, whatever adjunct you have. Um, and if you're a BLS crew, of course, OPA, NPA, and then ventilation as you need. With the ET tube itself, of course, if you're going to intubate and you're still coding, make sure we are working on things like passive oxygenation. So we talked about passive oxygenation just with a non-breather and an adjunct, but now using that with a nasal cannula. So nasal cannulas, people have this fear that they can't increase the flow on that. It's six liters. That's what I've been taught. That's what's on registry. You know, what do you mean you're going to 15 liters, one, five liters? Yes. So you want to increase it to 15 liters. And here's why that amount of pressure that you're giving in with that high flow of oxygen is going to hopefully wash out the nitrogen that's built up within their lungs and allow for more oxygen in that space. The goal is to get 100% oxygen. Remember, oxygen is only about 21% of the air. Nitrogen is about 44%. So we want to wash all of that out. Then with that, while we're intubating, hopefully we're reducing the incidence of them becoming hypoxic. And again, a good attempt should be 30 seconds or less. So don't spend all day in the airway. If you can't get it, you can't get it. There's nothing wrong with leaving an adjunct in. And we will talk more in depth about apneic oxygenation and intubation in a later episode, but I just wanted to touch on that. So please, um, with airway adjuncts themselves, even you know, some people don't want to use a king or don't want to use an eye gel. They want to intubate or nothing, which is fine. I get that. Um, with those though, so say you're working in the hospital setting or you're responding secondary to a EMS crew who's already been working a code and, or you're the medic on or whatever you get there and they've got a eye gel in. This is oxygenating well, it's ventilating well, 
patients still in cardiac arrest, but their airways technically manage. You should not feel the pressure to intubate them. If anything, just let it be. I um, some of the best providers that I work with, you know, trauma center, not trauma center, wherever, they will leave those adjuncts in for a couple rounds and start working on other HS and Ts because technically that's managed. Now, if those devices aren't working, that's a different story. Yes, upgrade your advanced airway. But if they are working, what is your rush to remove it? Right. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, don't don't go down the rabbit hole. And, and the biggest thing, biggest thing I think that you alluded to, especially, is don't spend too much time in the airway. And especially in this cardiac arrest setting that we're talking about, is minimize those interruptions, even after the four two hundred cycles. I mean, if you're spending way too much time in there, or eventually having to impede somebody that's doing CPR because it's impe- having issues with your view, stop right there. You're the one that's the impeding actual progress. Time for the Nigel, it's time for the alternative, help them out. Worst case scenario, uh, you know, OPA, MPA, BVM. Two MPAs are better than one, you know, along with an OPA can help you out any which way possible, especially BLS crews. It is what it is. Uh, but it's one of the times that, again, don't hurt the patient, help them out. Alternative airway, it's not that you're bowing to it, but you have to minimize the interruptions to give them the best opportunity. Right. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Sometimes less is more. We say it again and again and again. BLS before ALS. I get it. Um, but, you know, using your, that critical thinking, that clinical judgment. What does this patient actually need right now? What's working? What's not working? What else can I focus my time on? Especially if you don't have a CPR device. You don't have a ventilator. Maybe if I go ahead and just leave them with this passive oxygenation and it's me and one other partner, we can switch compressions so we can be more effective. We can you know, maximize our time and our hands and our resources to give that patient that best outcome. Yeah, and the way I the way I see it, you know, what's going to help these patients? Ventilation and oxygen. You know, an oxygenation, um, a piece of plastic between their cords is not going to make a huge difference. And I think where a lot of people get locked in with, you know, no, we need a tube, we need a tube, is either a very old school form of thinking where it was, you know, you know, airway, airway, airway first, or it's some of the providers that just really put their ego behind getting that tube, which I think we've all been guilty of. Yeah, a I, mean, couple, I think I'm you know, still guilty. T- I'm, yes, I'm guilty I'm of it. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm. A, you know, unfortunately, I'm a firm believer in my ET tubes, my ET tube. But I've also be. I have to be smart enough to know the timing of it mm-hmm. in those kind of instances. And I, I've I've come up against the eye gels before there, but. I did not. I don't think I've ever pulled an eye gel because a it's working and it's one less issue for me to take care of. So mm-hmm. stop creating problems for yourself. Move on. Yep, agreed. I think in the grand scheme of things, as we're tying everything off together, please be mindful of your H's and T's. There's plenty of things to look at and try to decipher. Um, CPR has changed a great amount. We're looking more at CCR 200, four uninterrupted. Treat your patients appropriately. Get them oxygenated well enough and one thing that you might not might be seeing down the line that be coming up is the change in epinephrine. I mean, part of our state has already changed in how they're approaching epinephrine treatment uh, to avoid any 30-day neurological deficit and further issues with patients. It might not be three to five minutes, one milligram till no ceiling, and uh, we might be just looking at two, spacing it out. I mean, don't be surprised. To me, I, I think we were kind of discussing it off air a little bit, is everything is in medicine to a certain extent is cyclical. We had that little bit of time where we had epinephrine, then vasopressin, and then wait for 10 minutes and don't give anything else. Um, don't be surprised if you hear it somewhere that maybe vasopressin starts making a little bit of a 
come back. I mean, we'll see if we hear anything. We'll talk about it more. But especially in cardiac arrest, I think, you know, third eye seeing future wise, not me is going to be, oh, it's going to be one vasopressin and done. And that's the rest of your cardiac arrest. Yeah. But I think it's always going to be changing too. You know, I think we're always, you know, the, the cutting edge new stuff that we're finding out now, I'm sure several years down the road, we'll find something, you know, not working with that and we'll keep changing it. You know, I remember uh, a physician saying once that in med school, his teacher told him that, 50% of what I teach you is going to be a lie, and I don't know which 50% it is. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you know, because medicine's changing so much, and we're always finding something new. So I think that'll be the case with all this stuff, too. Thank you again, guys, for joining us for another episode. Hopefully, we've been able to do a great job as far as refresh a couple of things in cardiac arrest for you. This is really a broad subject to a, a great extent. I mean, we could spend days and hours. What we wanted to bring forward is just more of the compression emphasis, looking at where the potentially epinephrine might be going or currently is as well as giving you a little HSNT's refresher and introducing greater things that will hopefully help us in medicine and understand that we don't have to run with our patients. We can stay, play, stabilize them and then get them moving because there's a greater chance in recoding patients when, once we start them into the moving process and our CPR is not effective and everything else. Uh, and again, that's where it ties off with mechanical CPR machines and potential use of ventilators. Everything that will kind of take it away from us, we're still in control, but it will make the process much easier for our patients with less interruptions. Thank you again for listening. Um, here with Alex Zane and Andrew, we'll see you guys on the next episode. Mm -hmm.